Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry. So it's Stuff You Should Know. And we're doing one of my favorite things, Chuck. What's that? Archaeology. Yeah, we've done a few of these over the years. Yes, yeah, specifically one called Archaeology in a Nutshell, which was mostly about archaeology. <laughs> yeah, and boy, it's hard to find an archaeology uh, article on the internet that doesn't mention Indiana Jones. <laughs> I'll yep. just say that. Including this one from Stuff You Should Know, or from yep. How Stuff Works. It was the one, two, third, and fourth word in this article. Yep. Forget the Indiana Jones fedora. Yeah, but you know what? Like... No pun intended. Hats off to that character <laughs> for, uh, I mean, he, he's that, that, that character has done so much for the field of archaeology just by existing, you know? Yeah, for sure. It definitely opened my eyes. Archaeology was one of the first complicated words I could spell as a, a youngster. Yeah, I bet you. To, thanks to Indiana Jones. I bet 95% of archaeologists between the ages of, uh, 30 and 55 are there because of Indiana Jones. Right. And you can usually pick them out because they tend to dress like him. <laughs> oh, yeah. As well. <laughs> like, you really don't need a whip. <laughs> no. I don't need it. Right. I want it. You never know. Yeah. But, yeah, he he represents, though, this kind of, um, well, he represents a type of archaeologist that never actually existed, you know, pulp, pulp fiction kind of archaeologist from the, like, the 1930s adventures, right? Yeah. So that that didn't actually Indiana Jones and his ilk didn't ever really exist, but he also kind of represents this type of archaeology that um, that has become old school for sure and is starting to be replaced. I was going to say slowly being replaced, but I get the impression that it's fairly quickly being replaced by this kind of new method, these new techniques that uh, put together all fall under the name of bioarchaeology. Right. Uh, which is a, a sub genre, not genre, but <laughs> sub uh, specialty, sub field. There's a word I'm looking for. I can't find it. I think subspecialty works or a yeah. specialty. Yeah, it is a specialty, but I, I can't. I can't. A sub umbrella of the umbrella <laughs> term. A subbrella. Man, it's gonna bug me. I'll think of it later. All right. Uh, so anyway, um, we're we're talking about. The combining of a lot of different disciplines in archaeology, uh, mm-hmm. and they all have great long names like uh, paleodemography, just studying ancient populations, uh, the mm-hmm. demographics of those. Right. Paleogenetics, which is a big deal, as you will see, with DNA, scraping some old mm-hmm. teeth, you know, finding out sure. what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, mortuary studies, which that's the best way to get a date in college. <laughs> right. If you say you're you're minoring in mortuary studies. Right. What else? Well, um, basically anything where you can apply new scientific techniques to um, the study of, of bones in particular. Um, bones that, and poop. That, that kind of, yeah, that kind of um, lends itself to being called bioarchaeology. But the, the field, this little thing that started out, I think, is kind of a, kind of a fairly specialized subdiscipline of archaeology. That's it's, the word, subdiscipline. I think I suggested that, didn't I? No, I don't All think right. so. Um, it, it, 
It's starting to replace archaeology as a whole, from what I can see and just from becoming, the outside looking in. It's becoming archaeology. Exactly. It's replacing some of these old techniques with these new techniques. It's kind of a technocratic approach to archaeology. And the practices, the best practices they're coming up with, are so good that they're kind of undoing old archaeology. And so this specialized field is kind of taking over the field as a whole. And it seems to be the way that archaeology is going. And one of the reasons that just initially it was just like dig up the bones and try to read them in even better ways than the old style of archaeology did. Right. But as it's growing as a field or as a subdiscipline, it's it's starting to try to answer bigger and bigger questions about the people that are being dug up and the populations that they belong to. Yeah, kind of uh, putting it in a historic context and not just um, let me look at this one set of bones and what this says about this person. But like you said, they're trying to almost reconstruct societies as a whole uh, and social strata and uh, what they ate and what kind of things killed them and mm -hmm. Uh, whether or not they accepted outsiders, like, it's really kind of neat. Um, it, it really is. I like it. And plus, I mean, this is stuff that archaeology, um, I guess you could call it old school archaeology, concerned itself with as well. But I, I get the impression that um, the old school archaeology was not rooted enough in science. So they, they were at risk of making grand pronouncements that were not necessarily... Um, Correct. So right. you just have limited evidence like this one skeleton or maybe one burial area. And just from a few things that were basically based on observation, um, just like visual observation, you would make these extrapolating. You would extrapolate onto the, the population as a whole and you could get that wrong really easily. So what bioarchaeology does is the same thing. You still bury up dead bodies. You uh, you surmise things from the, the way that they were situated, the stuff they were buried with and all that. But then you also apply scientific investigation like genetics and like, um, like using mass spectrometers to, yeah. to isolate isotopes in, in bones. And then you take that evidence and you apply it to the visual observations you've made and you get a, a clearer picture and you're at less risk of getting it wrong, I think. That's why it's becoming archaeology. Yeah. And, um, We'll probably talk about this a little more later on, but one of the things I thought was really neat about this is uh, they make the point in our article here that, you know, history is written by historians. So you often just get stories or the history of the more important people. Right. And uh, they even quoted a bioarchaeologist in here that says that their goal is to kind of work from the bottom up and yeah. to find out what was going on with some of these marginalized people in society or at the very least society as a whole and not just, you know, let's dig up King Tut's tomb, which right. is great. But who who worked on King Tut's tomb? Like, that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, that's basically what's called diplomatic or great man histiography. Love it. Which is the study of, well, that's the, that's just digging up King Tut and focusing on him and leaders and rulers. And that's based on the idea that they're the ones who really oh, push oh. society forward or in whatever direction it Don't went. Don't love it. It was on the rulers. <laughs> and that's the way that it's been. Like, that's like kind of the Western white patriarchal 
approach to studying history. Sure. What what you love and what bioarchaeology has tasked itself with is called history from below, which is like you said, it's, yeah. it's sussing out the the common people's lives and and figuring out society from there. And one of the neat things about that, Chuck, is it. Like, imagine if you're just part of a marginalized group today, yeah. and you find out from some archaeologists down the road or some historians down the road that actually the group that you're a part of did some really amazing things in this one civilization at this one period in time. That That's inspiring. That can inspire people alive today yeah. to do great things with their own lives based on, you know, finding out some neat stuff about their ancestry that would have otherwise been overlooked if their ancestry had never been part of the leadership of a, a society. Yeah. So there's a lot of value to it. Yeah, and the term itself, you're more likely, at, at least at this point, and I think you're right, it is changing, um, uh, to hear it in America, even though it was first used by a British archaeologist named Sir John Graham Douglas Clark, mm-hmm. great British name, uh, in the 1970s, but uh, an American anthropologist named Jane Ellen uh, Buchstra. <laughs> That's as good as I could have done. Buchstra, B-U-I-K-S-T-R-A. Um, she's the one who kind of popularized it, and Americans kind of picked up on the term a little more, at least at this point. You're not as likely to hear it uh, in Europe right now. Right. Well, we're just going to call her Jane Ellen. <laughs> okay. So Jane <laughs> Ellen, she was an anthropologist, and she basically took that term bioarchaeology and basically said it was the integration of archaeology and human osteology, which yeah. is the study of human bones and what they can tell us, um, put together to investigate biocultural change. That was her definition of bioarchaeology, and she came up with it in 1977. Yeah. And that really kind of is the, uh, the, the definition for the field today. Yeah, she was awesome, actually. I looked into her a little bit. So, Does she wear a pith helmet, too? We, uh, she's, probably pith, she's probably been a pither at some point. Sure. Uh, I had a dude right in, actually, that was an, a fellow pither. Nice. I, I saw a couple of people on Twitter saying, like, I had to go look this up, but this is what you're wearing in the pool? <laughs> well, I mean, there, to be fair, there are the, uh, like, the British uh, soldier-type uh, tall pith helmets. With the red feather? Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the low safari sure. type that provides the coverage. That's precisely what I assumed you were talking about. Yeah, that it'd be just weird to wear the tall one. It's totally normal <laughs> to wear right. the other one in right. a swimming pool. That's right. Uh, but yeah, this guy was a mail carrier, so. Uh, oh yeah, it seems like that might be standard issue for um, for the post office. Now that you mention it, I've seen him before. I have too. For the walkers, at least. Yep. The uh, walkers, the <laughs> undead ones. <laughs> All right. Well, I think. I think we should already take a break since we provided such a nice broad overview. Gosh. That's all right. Sure. And uh, we'll come back and talk uh, more and more about bones and poop. All right. All right, so we promised talk of bones and poop. Uh, we'll deal with bones first. And um, bones, most times, unless like uh, recently when they found, uh, did you hear like just a couple of days ago, they found this couple from World War II yeah. frozen in the Swiss Alps. Yes, and okay, so this couple, it's so tragic, right? This, it they, is. They, they had tons of kids. 
that were at home. The mom finally, the dad used to go hiking in the mountains all the time. The mom finally went with them for the first time. And they get lost and, and fell, they fall into a crevasse and are lost for 70 years. Yeah. Never heard so from them again. Yeah. And the reason why she never went with them before, with her husband before, is because she was pregnant all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so she reared a bunch of kids, fell into a crevasse, died, was lost for 70 years, and then was found again by a ski lift company. Can you imagine coming across something like that? It'd be grisly. In World War II out- outfits? I mean, yeah. not uniform, obviously, but period era clothing? Yeah. So anyway, barring something like that, generally what you're going to be left with when people die, that flesh goes away very quickly and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as in a relative sense. And you're going to be left with bones, these skeletons. Uh, they're very durable. They're very hard. Uh, and they last a very long time. So um, the best evidence that, that bioarchaeologists work with for the most part, are like bones and teeth. Right, because those, like you said, they last a very, very long time, and there's actually quite a bit you can tell from those things. Sure. In fact, I saw um, a, an explanation of bioarchaeology, because it's such an evolving field still, Chuck, that the, the definition, even though Jane Ellen's definition holds pretty well, there's it, it's, it's just not set in stone. No one says this is the definition, right? Right. So one explanation for bioarchaeology I saw said that it, as a discipline, it views the skeleton as a form of material culture crafted through lived experience. Whoa, right? that's deep. So the skeleton itself has the markers of all these different things yeah. that this person did in their lifetime, had done to them in their lifetime, like, say, an infliction of violence, um, suffered from in their lifetime, like a disease, yeah. ate in their lifetime. Um, How hard they worked. Yeah, all of this stuff is left behind in your bones, and we've just recently really figured out how to read this beyond looking at it and visually inspecting it. We've learned how to apply scientific tools like DNA analysis to 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 glean more information from them. Yeah, it's really neat. Like, did these people – like, it really puts a, a human – a more broad human – aspect to it all i think yeah for sure uh like did these people suffer as a society did they thrive were they healthy were they sick uh what did they overcome uh what was their what was their environment like like did they uh, was it social upheaval that brought them down or was it uh you know a large wave or was it a disease from eating the wrong thing right uh it's really interesting i know a couple of i think it was in 2014 I believe we talked about this on some show, but it might have even been an Internet Roundup, but they discovered the oldest human poop, uh, 50,000-year-old Neanderthal poop, <laughs> and they found out that it was a bit of a surprise that they ate a lot of vegetables. Yeah, I saw this um, documentary recently called What the Health, I think is what it was called. It's on oh, Netflix or whatever. So clever. <laughs> right. Um, but there's a, a, a ongoing discussion in it about whether humans are actually herbivores or omnivores. Yeah, well, is, it was a bit of a surprise because they thought that Neanderthals, I think it's talls, right? Uh, I say talls, but I think I think it is supposed to be talls. I don't know. Well, the, they ate largely only meat. Uh, and then they found that, no, the, in the it's called coprolite, this, these fossil feces. Right. Um, they did eat a lot of meat, obviously, but they were eating uh, and they couldn't tell from the chemistry analysis of the poop itself. But they did pollen analysis of the area 
and found that they were eating like berries and nuts and tubers. And uh, it just, you know, overall just gives kind of a more complete picture of something like you were talking about earlier. They previously were like, no, all they did was eat meat. Well, yeah. Plus also, I mean, think about it. So there's this whole idea that all of the megafauna in North America collapsed like around 12,000 years ago. Yeah. And humans get blamed for it. Like we overhunted the megafauna. Right. Well, if we find evidence down the road through bioarchaeology that, no, actually, most of the ancestors who made it to North America um, and were living here 12,000 years ago were vegetarians for the most part, they probably didn't overhunt right. and drive to extinction these uh, the megafauna. It was probably something else that did it. And so, you know, laying it at the feet of these early humans has been kind of a cautionary tale. Like, look what happened. Yeah. You can lead to environmental collapse if you don't manage the wildlife correctly. But if that's not actually true and we find out what did lead to the collapse of the megafauna, then maybe we can protect against that instead. Right. You know what I mean? And just forget the rest of wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> you can overhunt all you want. Well, it's definitely calling into question a lot of things that we took for granted uh, because of, oh, just sort of limited science, I guess, is the best way to say it. Yeah, and there was this Atlas Obscura article we both read about um, human feces, about coprolite, yeah. the study of it. I think it was something like, to know an uh, ancient civilization, you have to study its feces or some, something along those lines. Yeah, to truly know an ancient society, one must analyze its feces. Right, and it gives an example of this one archaeologist who was working back in the 60s and is working today. And back in the 60s, when they would find copper light, they would be like, oh, this is interesting. And then they'd use it uh, for like flying disc contests at <laughs> lunch, right? Can you believe it? This is like, this is not that long ago no. that the archaeologists were doing this. And today it's like you find copper light, you bag it separately from the other copper light sure. found. You're, it's going back for genetic analysis. You take half of the sample and preserve it so that you can use it for later analysis when our tools become even more advanced. Yeah. Like it's, it's just been, it's just such a great example of old school archaeology and the new um, archaeology that's coming up today. Yeah, like they're looking at it as a, which is as it is, which is a legitimate important find that can tell you a lot about a society right instead of playing frisbee baseball with it. Right. Or I guess it's frisbee football, right? Frisbee froth. They're playing froth <laughs> with the poop. Did you ever play that frisbee golf? No. They have courses for that stuff. I know. Yeah. I know they definitely do. I'm sure they did in Athens if they don't still. Well, in true Chuck form, I went so far as to buy a couple of different Frisbee golf Frisbees uh -huh. and never went. <laughs> oh, you never did, huh? Nope. No. Nope. That's kind of my thing. Nothing beats sitting around when you're in college. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, Copper Light, I mean, it took, uh, I mean, it took from the 1960s until just recently like even through the 80s and 90s, it said that it was a pretty small field of people that took it seriously. And other people right. were still, even in the 90s, like, ah, eh, what are you studying poop for? Um, and to be fair, at the time, especially like back in the 60s, as, as recently as like the 80s or 90s, I guess, like you were saying, we didn't have anything that we could do with the human poop. Besides, besides froth. Besides froth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't anything you could do. I mean, you could break it open and be like, oh, look, a corn a corn seed. Right. They were eating corn. That's about the best you could hope for, right? right. So there, there wasn't much you could do. But even still, if you look at what we're doing with it today, which is 
preserving half of the sample for future analysis with yeah. better tools that haven't been invented sure. yet, that definitely um, underscores a, a, a mentality that wasn't present before either, which is uh, this is not the apex yet. We're, we haven't reached the apex of science. Yeah. I mean, now nowadays they can rehydrate it. Uh, they can say, hey, there were parasites in this poop. Yeah. And in fact, in all the poop of all these people that lived here. So perhaps that's what killed them. Yeah. And they don't even have to have the stool sample. They can find an, like an, said an ancient latrine and learn a lot from that. And it's, right. you know, it sounds kind of funny, but it's, you can learn a lot from this stuff. Well, I remember, uh, when I was writing the cannibalism article years back, oh, finding yes. like right around that time, they had found evidence of cannibalism from copper light and they had done it really roundabout. Um, they'd found some protein that is only found in human muscle. And they oh, found it in the poop yeah. of uh, some south southwestern uh, indigenous groups poop, and they think that it was the result of climate change because the climate had changed and people were starving, and they engaged in cannibalism as a result. But um, that's a pretty sterling example of bioarchaeology in action. Yeah, this one guy, uh, Pierce Mitchell, uh, from University of Cambridge, go I don't know, <laughs> go fighting chaplains, <laughs> fighting chaplains. Uh, he learned through studying fecal matter that King Richard III had roundworm. Yeah. So, you know. That's great man histiography, though. Sure. Boo. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what, man, I didn't expect to go right into poop, but no. there we did it. Well, let's talk teeth. Let's go from poop to teeth, you know, the standard. <laughs> yeah, teeth are a big marker. Um, Like if they dug me up one day. Mm-hmm. They would say, well, this gentleman had at least two bad teeth because the only thing left. And and I had a brief conversation with the, the very famous Mike Rowe for just kind of weirdly had a conversation with him one day about my implants. Uh-huh. And he said, oh, you have those implants. And he went, oh, well, just know in a thousand years, that'll be the only thing left of you. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of good to know. Sure, yeah. They'll they'll be like obviously this person was of higher social status. <laughs> yeah, he could afford an implant. He had implants, yeah. Had, or at least dental insurance. He was probably venerated. Uh and bury me with my flippers is all I'm gonna say too. Right. Uh so what they could find out from teeth, uh or can find out, maybe um if the uh children suffered from malnutrition. Um, well there's a whole there's a whole thing where when you are malnourished as a child your teeth form these little lines in them yeah, as grooves. the development is kind of stunted. And they stay there for life, even if you uh, manage to become nourished and survive. Yeah. Right? So they can tell what your diet was like as a child from just looking at your teeth. Well, and can also tell, I guess, when I was talking about how society may have overcome something, mm -hmm. uh, maybe they you know, were close to death and overcame disease. Right. To, to end up thriving, but they still had those lines in the teeth. Right, exactly. Um, they can also tell from teeth, if you crush teeth up and powder them and <laughs> run them through a mass spectrometer, there's some pretty neat stuff you can do with that, actually. Um, when you're a little kid and you start eating and drinking the local water, there's something um, called strontium, and it's a it's a stable isotope that's found in the bedrock of your area, and it's specific to your area, your region. It's pretty localized, right? Yeah. The type of strontium uh, isotope that's going to be where you live. And when you 
when the when rainwater filters through the bedrock into groundwater and then comes back out and is taken up by plants and enters the water supply, and then your mom eats that plant and then breastfeeds you, those strontium isotopes get transferred to you and they get locked into your teeth for life, right? So where you're born can be isolated by using a mass spectrometer to, to find the, what strontium isotopes are in your teeth. That can be done whether you were, whether you lived 50,000 years ago or were born yesterday. Either way. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I feel like we've talked about that before. There's no way we haven't, right? Yeah, like something about the water that you drank as a child. Yeah, that would be it. Yeah, totally. Right, so you're taking in strontium isotopes and you've got those embedded in your teeth. You also get different kinds of isotopes as well, strontium, lead, oxygen. They all have stable isotopes that get embedded into your into your skeleton, whether it's your teeth or your, your bones. But the stuff in your teeth from when you're young stays in there. It's permanently locked in. But the stuff in your bones, remember we did like, does the body replace itself every seven or eight yeah. years? Um, since your skeleton replaces itself pretty, pretty, on a pretty regular basis, the strontium and the isotopes that are found in your bones later in life are going to be a marker of where you lived close to your death, right? Yeah. So if the strontium isotopes in your teeth are different from the strontium isotopes in your bone, well, a bioarchaeologist is going to say, this person migrated. Yeah. Where did they come from? Why did they migrate? Why were they buried with all these great grave goods? Did they come from a different culture and basically end up, you know, becoming venerated in this new culture? Were they like a high priest? Or what? what's the deal? Where did this person come from? That's amazing. That's, yeah. And that's just kind of um, laying the groundwork now. And we might not have the t- the technology to say, "Oh, well, this is where he came from." Or we don't have the interpretation yet to say this is where this is where they came from, and this is what happened when they arrived. But we can we can create raw data from that for successive generations of archaeologists to look at and use to to. Um, to include it into a better understanding of the population they're examining. Yeah, and with uh, the mass spectrometer, which we've talked about in other shows too, they do something called stable isotope analysis in terms of also finding out what what people ate. It, that if there's a difference in molecular weight, like the ratio of uh, heavy to light particles, they can determine whether someone consumed more uh, carbon or more nitrogen in their lifetime. Uh, if they have a lot of nitrogen, maybe they ate a lot of meat or mm-hmm. most likely ate a lot of meat. Or they just ate handfuls of nitrogen. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Uh, nice nitrogen fields could come across. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, if they have a high ratio of the carbon, uh, maybe they ate a lot of like corn or I guess maize um, and sorghum. That's such a great word. Sure it is. Uh, low That's carbon. A, it's an old timey word. Like anytime I hear sorghum, I immediately think overalls. Yeah, me too. <laughs> A uh, low ratio of carbon isotopes might mean they ate uh, more potatoes and wheat and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's just amazing that science has gotten to this point. You can dig up a bone, find out where someone was from, where they died, and what they ate. Yep. Like, largely in their life. Yeah. And, again, you're putting it in context with where you're finding this. Like, Yeah, that's um, already, like, the story that's already there. Exactly. You know, because people, if you if you put if you bury somebody with something, um, that says a lot. Like it, just as much as as what your bones say about how you lived. Mm-hmm. I saw somebody say like the way that you're treated in death 
by the people who you're survived by, that says quite a bit as well. So oh, yeah. the type of burial, the way that your, your grave was marked, um, says a lot about not just you and how you were treated, but also what the society was, you know, found important. That's true, because you can ask for whatever you want in your burial. Right. But <laughs> someone's got to feel good enough about you to carry that out, carry those exactly. wishes out. They they might be like, you know, sure, we'll I, I want to keep this, <laughs> this wooden phallus. I don't want yeah. you to be buried with it. True. Did you see that thing, The um, those mummies that were discovered in China? No. Mm, think so these ones hobby lobby took no i think that was like um middle eastern artifacts that hobby lobby had which i don't know anything about that do you uh i read briefly the after i saw the words hobby lobby i got what were they doing with that stuff i don't know it's it's very bizarre i mean maybe they were collectors i maybe or they were going to turn it into a line of like um tasteful home decor (laughs) probably so well, this the, there was a group of mummies found that belonged to an unnamed population that lived about 4,000 years ago in um, a part of an autonomous part of China that's now a desert. It's called the Taklimakan Desert. I'm sure I got that 100% right. <laughs> but the, the area, the district that they were um, found near is called the Shohuju okay. District. And um, the... There's a the the mummies are just incredibly well preserved, so much so that their hair is totally intact. They were buried with these um, felt hats and fur-lined boots that are totally intact. I think one of them had like a feather in their cap that was intact. Like the 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 preservation is just unheard of, and one of them is so well preserved that she's called the beauty of Shohuju, right? Yeah, where um she's just. Kind of good looking as far as mummies go. Like, go look her up. Don't think I'm a weirdo. You'll feel <laughs> odd about this after you see her yourself, right? What was the name again? The Beauty of Shohuju. Okay. So um, it's not at all pronounced like that. But just type in Beauty Mummy China or something like that, and sure. it will definitely bring it up. But this this unknown group... Um, they were like they would bury their dead with phalluses or vulvas. They were buried with like 13 foot phalluses sticking out of like their graves. They were really into sex for one reason or another. Right. And the hats that they were buried in um, were found in burials in the area 2000 years later. And so this unknown group that no one has any idea what they what they were like or what they were into aside from they were super sexy right um (laughs) they they think that they know what language they spoke um because the the group that had similar hats two thousand years later was known to speak this one lost language and it was more related to Latin than, say, like Central Asian, which doesn't really make sense until you find out that some of these mummies actually had red hair and European features, and they think that they were a pastoral group that basically herded their cows all the way from Western Europe over to the the um, deserts of Central China. Wow. Isn't that astounding? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. But again, bioarchaeology. <laughs> All right, well, let's take another break here. We'll talk a little bit about DNA and um, a little bit about how Hobby Lobby kind of figures into this in a way. Okay.
All right, so we've talked about mass spectrometers. Mm-hmm. Talked about good old-fashioned tooth scraping. Good-looking mummies. Talked about the sexiest mummies in history. Right. I'm sure that's a there's a top ten list on the internet somewhere. I'm telling you, you'll be like, oh, well, there's number one. <laughs> I got to see this. Um. So I guess DNA is sort is sort of the next place to go. It's uh, they've been using DNA in archaeology for a while, obviously since the advent of DNA. They've been trying to apply it, but they use it as as much as they can now. Ancient DNA, because obviously with DNA you can find out all kinds of things from relatedness uh, to other individuals within a population, mm-hmm. uh, marriage patterns maybe, and obviously just something is. I mean, they can tell largely from the bones what kind of uh, uh, sex of an individual, but DNA is the shoe in. Yeah, supposedly, even even if you are sexing an individual by the bone structure, you're, it's still an educated guess. It's yeah. not definitive. Sure. It's DNA that, that's the only definitive way to say this is a man or this is a woman. Yeah, it could, could have been a man with a very dainty frame. Um, there's this, uh, so the, the, the mummy is called the beauty of X I A O H E, which okay. <laughs> believe it or not is Shohuju. Yeah. Shohuju. How's my Chinese? <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. Thanks, man. I actually, I, I, I'm going the extra step these days and looking up pronunciations and then practicing, which is the second step. What, uh, what word was it that shamed you into doing that? Oh, there's been so many. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't bring any to mind. I think I blocked them out to keep any level of self-respect. But there have been plenty, as you're well aware. Can you think of one? No. Okay. Nothing recently. I'm sure everyone will let us know on the Internet. Oh, I just found the mummy. Yeah. Am I right or what? That's a good-looking mummy. Well, I don't know. It's a little weird to say. <laughs> it is, but I think when you when you approach it from like a wow, that's a mummy. I can't believe how well preserved it is. Yeah. Place instead of like a sure a mummy. Yeah. Although, hey man, to each his own. <laughs> Does that extend to that? Yeah. Sure. All right. Uh, all right. What else about DNA? Uh, lineages, obviously, it's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, you can, you can find a group of, a group burial or a, basically a cemetery. Yeah. And now bioarchaeologists just like to show off by showing who's related to whom. Yeah. Just like, by saying, well, uh, well, let's look at their, their, their genes, their DNA. Sure. Which is pretty neat. Yeah. And as a whole, if you look at a cemetery, I mean, that's, I mean, finding a, an individual is great, but when archaeologists can uncover a, a burial ground, that's when they really kind of lick their chops because they can learn a lot about like the the hierarchy of the society. Right. Uh, what different ones of them ate. Uh, like you said, if they migrated, uh, maybe they're from somewhere else. Where were they born? Right. Uh, which says a lot about a population if they took in people from other societies. Yeah. No, that's a great point. killing them right away. That's a great point, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that actually gives a, a pretty good example of um, – like the the social hierarchy thing, uh, that gives a good example of bioarchaeology in that. Where you, whereas before you would find a grave and this one had like a marker and the person was buried with a lot of cool stuff, and then it's next to a grave or there's a grave nearby, 
that isn't really buried with as much stuff. So you would say, well, this this person was obviously venerated and this was a socially unequal society. Right. And it's a pretty good guess. You know, you you you're you're probably right. But what bioarchaeology does now is they take that 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 surmising and then they say, okay, well, this person had a diet that was rich in meat and this person ate nothing but vegetables. So the the rich in meat person who had the nicer grave was probably richer. And let's look at their bones. Oh, well, their bones are less dense, which would indicate they had not engaged in hard labor during their lifetime, whereas this other person's bones are very dense, which meant that they probably did engage in hard labor. And so you start putting all this stuff together, and you're backing up that that um, the, the surmise that you made about the, the, the um, social strata or stratigraphy. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Sure. I'm glad at least one person does. Uh, and, and you're, you're basically backing it up rather than just jumping to conclusions and leaving it at that. Yeah. It's a much more firm science for sure. Yeah. So, uh, I, I kind of teased before the break that Hobby Lobby kind of plays a part, but I was referencing in general when it's kind of the, um, anytime we talk about archaeology, there's a certain amount of controversy involved because what you're inherently doing is disturbing um, ancient graves, uh, in almost all cases, unless, you know, there are no humans there, but, um, that's, there's going to be some controversy within that. Some people think you shouldn't do it at all. Yeah. Uh, and then other people have come along the way to at least kind of give a framework of how best to do this best practices. Uh, UNESCO, the United Nations educational scientific and cultural organization, um, in 1970 adopted a convention uh, called the the means of prohibiting and preventing the illicit import, export, and transfer of ownership of cultural property. <laughs> That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful, but basically what it says is, um, you know, try not to let happen, which is what Hobby Lobby did, which is obviously pay for a cultural object that didn't belong to your people. Right, right. Or and you if, individually. And right, that's the key. If if somebody even if it's somebody who is a member of, say, like the tribe that that artifact comes from yeah. or that that skeleton comes from, there's a, something called cultural patrimony, which is that that is an object that belongs to the tribe as a whole. And no individual, including an individual from that tribe, can claim ownership over it or over the tribe. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So if the tribe says, no, that's ours, the tribe wins, that individual doesn't. Yeah. And there's been a a really big and I know we talked about this on other episodes, but there's been a really big push um, in the past 10 years, but really in the past like 20, 25 years for Mm -hmm. repatriation of these cultural items here in the U.S. And uh, I think in 1990, they. um, Yeah. George H.W. Bush. Yeah. They passed a legislation called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation. Repatriation Act, NAGPRA. Sure. <laughs> yeah, why not? It's not as catchy as UNESCO. That's a good one. No. Uh, but, you know, like I said, the idea is that you you just can't come in here and and uh, steal is such a harsh word. But, that's but it's kind of grave what it rob? Is. Yeah, it's really tough. I think grave robbing, we did one on that, right, as a whole? Yeah, remember that one that one audience member in in London called me out and was like, "Are you saying my parents are grave robbers because they're both archaeologists?" And I was like, eh, oh, "Of course, that was our life topic." I said, "Some people would say that for sure." <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, 
there's a little bit of like pushback though in some cases because sometimes they end up having to rely on oral history and I think the the cynics uh would are saying um well you know the, how do we know they're just saying this stuff was, yeah that's was passed down orally like show it to me in writing right and they're like, like uh, well, we didn't have writing. we didn't have the <laughs> alphabet dude uh or you might have to be uh you might have to negotiate with a religious leader and then another um jerk might come along and say oh wait a minute uh these are their religious beliefs and this is federal law like we have to keep those things separate yeah so i mean those are all very cynical viewpoints i think generally bioarchaeologists try as much as possible to work with the the local people or the indigenous people and say, Hey, you know, this is your stuff. Let us uncover some of it, your secrets here. Right. And they'll like, no, don't we, <laughs> we don't want the secrets out. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, they try to have a, a good working relationship with the indigenous people. Uh, well, that's the best way to go forward. I'm yeah, sure. of course. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Like I would think, I mean, you never know. I'm not going to, Obviously, what's important to like one Native American tribe might be different for another. But I would think a lot of times they might want some of the stuff highlighted and even, you know, put on display as long as it's a temporary thing and they can get it back. You know, yeah, I think it also depends on the context. Like, you know, the turn of the last century was really rife with I mean, you really can't call it anything much more than than academically sanctioned grave robbing where, you know, universities of prestigiousness would send off basically guys who amounted to adventurers to go, you know, locate graves and loot them and bring them back for the uh, the universities to to widen their prestige with these collections. Right. Or for the crown. Sure. And yeah. then if, if for, if for decades you said, Hey, give that back. That was taken by anyone's, um, definition illegally. And the university's like, Oh, sorry. No, you're <laughs> going to be upset about that. Whereas if the person says, Well, Oh, yes, of course. Let's give this back to you. Can we do this analysis on it first? Right. And then get it back to you. Um, or if you discover something, you say, hey, let, we need to hold a meeting with this local indigenous population saying we found a grave site. Uh, we'd really like to excavate it, but it's up to them whether we do or not. Right. You're probably going to get a lot better reception than than you would if you just rolled right over their wishes uh, and, and didn't take them into consideration at all. Well, there's a saying here in the South, Josh, that you've probably heard. Catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. <laughs> right. <laughs> so true. It's always been my approach. Yep. That's why there's always plenty of honey at all of these uh, local meetings of indigenous people when the bioarchaeologists <laughs> show up. You know, they're digging that this is, uh, I just learned this today. They're, they're exhuming Salvador Dali. Yeah. Did you see that? A paternity test? Yeah. They're, they're. Jerry uh, Springer's behind it? Officially. <laughs> no, he's not, is he? No. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. No, it wouldn't me either. Uh, officials in Spain are going to break into his tomb, get a DNA sample, and see if this lady, uh, this woman, uh, Pilar Abel, is, in fact, his daughter. It's a good name, Pilar. She's a fortune teller. Oh, yeah? She's a little wacky. but Well, uh, well apparently her claim's legit enough that they're yeah. digging the guy up. Yeah, Holly um, from uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class and I were talking about this, mm-hmm. and I hadn't heard about it yet, and she was telling me about it. She was like, oh, this lady's 
she's a piece of work, man. She's wacky. I was like, well, <laughs> she probably just waltzed into court and knowing anything about Salvador Dali, the judge was like, yeah, maybe we should look into this. Right. Yeah. Like two of the, the great uh, odd figures, or at least yeah. one. Really? Yeah. I like how you just exposed Holly to a lawsuit from this lady. <laughs> By saying she was a... Wacky. Wacky. She is I wacky. quote, Holly Fry said, wacky. <laughs> uh, and of course, his family's, the Salvador Dali Foundation is fighting it. Uh, but it's to going keep forward. keep him buried? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when... It seems a little sentimental for Salvador Dali. It, it doesn't seem to fit his character, you know? Like, I'm sure he'd be like, whoa, all right, let's get it going. Yeah. Dig me up. Like, dig me up and bury me with the, the world's good, best looking mummy. She said it's, uh, uh, she said it's not about the dough. Um, so we'll it's see. It's about the money. Yeah. We'll see about that. It's like tens of millions of dollars at stake here. Easy. Oh, so she has a claim on his estate is what it is, huh? Well, that also explains why the foundation doesn't want her. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Off, huh? Like if he I if see. he fathered a child, she is his rightful heir because yeah. he didn't have any kids. I gotcha. I always could feel I have always have mixed feelings about that stuff. How so? so? Well, I mean, on one hand, it seems like, geez, this person coming along and like trying to get some of this money, but then on the other hand, it's like, well, yeah, but that's if that's his daughter that he never cared for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I definitely end up siding with the fact that it is family in the end. But it, it, I don't know, it feels a little icky sometimes, too. Well, yeah, I mean, you're digging up a body. You're you're digging up a body so you can make a claim on money, whether it is yeah. about that or not. It's just like, all it's a little definitely involved. But I also feel like there's a certain amount of, like, reverence for the dead body. Yeah. Where it's kind of like, no, if he fathered an illegitimate child in life, just because he died doesn't really get him off the hook from, you know, from from that. Yeah. From the, whatever consequence that might be, even in death. I, I don't I don't know. I hadn't really considered it until now. But um, I guess it is just kind of an icky thing overall. But it's also a it's just a dead body. You know what I mean? Sure. It's a dead body. I don't care. Yeah. I'm not too precious about my remains. That's good to know, because I'm going to dig you up based on that. Good. Make me into a bunch of soccer balls. All right. Just kick me around the world. That'd be great, man. What <laughs> right. a great idea. So, Chuck, let's let's wrap it up right. talking about, you know, why this kind of stuff is important. I think we've hit on it, like, here or there, like, explaining the history of a society from, you know, the common people rather than just the leadership gives a better idea of the society. That's definitely one thing. Oh, for sure. Um, but also, I think that bioarchaeology has kind of tasked itself with using the past, getting a clear picture of the past to explain the present or predict the near future. Yeah. You know, like one thing that a lot of people are um, trying to figure out is are, are humans inherently violent? And one way you, you could kind of provide evidence for that case is were we violent in the past? Yeah. There's a huge, I think we even did an, uh, an entire episode on that one that was pretty great about whether humans have always been violent. Um, and I think that's one thing that bioarchaeologists are trying to solve is finding evidence of violence or an evidence of a lack of violence yeah. in a society that happened before. Uh, another big one is climate change and how humans have responded to that in the past. 
right and what we might can do about it in the future. Exactly. Based on that, that, that learning. Yep. And then there's just something to be said about, you know, getting bones out of a grave. There's nothing more satisfying than that. Put them in a bag, throwing the bag over your shoulder and walking back to the lab, whistling <laughs> as you do. That's right. The job well done. You got anything else? I got nothing else, sir. Okay. Well, I'm sure bioarchaeology will have plenty more for us to talk about in the future, so maybe we'll revisit it. Uh, in the meantime, you can type that word, bioarchaeology, into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this what was in the subject line, which is, am I an a-hole? <laughs> Except she really said the word. Yeah, I know. This is from Michaela. Uh, and I always like these that kind of pose a question to us. So uh, this one does that. Here's uh, what went down, guys. Uh, it was a recent conversation with my boyfriend. I stopped at a stop sign at the same time as a car coming from the opposite direction who had a turn signal on. Uh, I was going straight. The guy and I both waved for the other to go ahead first. Got a little awkward, but that's not the important part. My boyfriend said he notices that it's usually men who do the wave to usher people at stop signs, and he thinks it's just them trying to be controlling and that they are probably jerks. Uh, I wave people through all the time, just trying to be nice and help them get where they're going a little bit faster without worrying about who should technically go first. So I've always assumed that when people do the wave at me, it's because they're trying to be nice. So my mm -hmm. questions to you all are, how do you perceive the wave? Am I a controlling a-hole? Uh, is this how my boyfriend perceives the wave? Is he a controlling a-hole uh, if he sees it that way? And should I stop doing the wave? And that's from Michaela. She said, thanks. I'll be seeing you in Lawrence, Kansas in a couple of months. I've been spreading the good word. Awesome. Thank you. So, Josh, what are your thoughts on the wave? When I am, I very infrequently wave. You just go. No, I guess that's not true. I don't actually wave. I do the, <laughs> you know, where you like present with your hand, your palm up, and then you kind of move it to one side like, oh, please, after you. Sure. Yeah. That's what I do, which I, I just realized is a form of the wave. And I do that sometimes, but I, I guess the only time I would do it is when it's not obviously clear who's supposed to go. So I tend to just let, ask the other person to go ahead and please after you, right? I don't think of that as being controlling, but that's exactly what I'm doing is taking control of the situation. But, but not I'm in doing a jerky it, way. Not trying, yeah, to me, just not even giving it a second thought and just in in basically pushing through ahead of somebody who may or may not justifiably should have gone first that's the jerky move to me yeah i think it goes both ways it just it just depends on your perception of the world do you hate people if so <laughs> then you probably find the wave to be controlling and jerky what about you all right so my four way stop sign uh, deal is very deep <laughs> It's a very big thing in my life. <laughs> Lay it on me. Well, I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> first of all, the worst people in society are people who mistreat uh, children, animals, and elderly. And then right behind them are people that just like run right through a stop sign because oh, they, yeah. they just know, like, I don't want to be bothered. Yeah, well, they could mistreat uh, children, animals, and the elderly with the front end of their car <laughs> like that, too. So those are awful people. Um, as far as the wave, I tend to just 
I tend to try and let someone else go first, but I'm also kind of impatient. So you've just got a moment. Like if you just sit there and dawdle <laughs> after I wave, oh yeah, I'll either get aggressive with my wave and then kind of look like a jerk, uh-huh. or I'll just go and be like, you know, you had your chance. Yeah, I, I do the I just go where I'm like, all right, see you in hell. Uh, and then the other thing that really bugs me about stop signs lately, I've noticed, is there there's a growing segment of society that seems to think like it doesn't matter who arrive first. It's just like I feel like I've been waiting long enough. Yeah, you can't do that. Like a that's, heavily that's trafficked, anarchy. a heavily trafficked four way stop. You may be the fourth, and I'm sorry that you feel like you've been sitting there too long. But if you were the fourth one to come to a complete stop, yeah then you got to let the other three go, not just like... I think they treat it like, hey, I stopped, and now I'm going. Now, now, there's a there's a sub... There's a sub-discipline to that, Chuck. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Where if somebody is going straight, and you're going straight in the other way, you can go straight right then and just uh, use up a turn simultaneously. It actually Agreed. keeps things going faster. Yep. It's not at all rude. Somebody might be like, hey, wait a minute. But if they stop and think for even half of a second, they'll see that you actually did them a favor. Yeah. So that is okay, as long as you're not trying it while somebody's turning left in front of you. Yeah, and there's also the thing that bugs me is when two people stop facing each other Mm -hmm. and uh, you both go to go at the same time because you think we're both going straight and they go to turn into you and like honk at you. Yeah. And I'm like, dude... Let me know which way you're going. Yet I probably would have let you go anyway. Right. But I thought you were going straight. Gotta use that blinker. You'll get a finger if you don't use the blinker. Whoa. Not by me, I'm just saying some people. <laughs> so anyway, I think out of all the traffic things, even including like highway merging, the four way trap stoplight or I'm sorry, the four way stop sign intersection mm-hmm. is my most troublesome and frustrating part of driving for me. Yeah. That's nice. number one. Well, now everybody knows, so look out for Chuck, all right? Yeah. This is Michaela that brought all this up? Yeah, Michaela. I hope, I hope we explained that. I don't think that means you're a controlling jerk, and I don't think that means your boyfriend is because he thinks that is what it means either. Yeah, maybe you guys should just find some other topics to discuss. Yes, but Michaela, I do think you're with the wrong guy overall, though. <laughs> <laughs> you're clearly oh, better than him. Poor guy. Okay. Uh, wow. I can't believe we're ending it like that. But if you want to get in touch with us like Michaela did, um, then you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can hang out with me on Twitter at Josh Um Clark. You can hang out with Chuck on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant or slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 